You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I've got a really big episode for you guys today. Uh, It is a long one, but it is one of my favorites that I've ever recorded. I am speaking with Collider.com's Haley Fouch about Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, Because it is a long episode, I'm going to keep the intro short, but... um, Haley is a good friend of mine. She and I met several years ago when we uh, were doing, uh, both doing entertainment journalism things. She is still doing more of that. Uh, but um, but she's a really good friend. She's a very smart mind. She has been part of the Collider.com staff for years and years and years. And she is the co-host of the podcast, The Witching Hour. And um, she picked Alien. And it's just uh, sort of a coincidence that last week's episode with Michael Kennedy was Terminator 2 and if you've listened to that episode you know that towards the end we actually start talking about Alien and we start talking about Ash and the android androids on film so it was actually kind of a perfect uh a perfect segue a perfect kind of this is a great little cousin episode or sister episode to um to last week's terminator 2 conversation so uh i hope you enjoy this i think you will there's some insight into the greatest scam that i ever pulled uh which revolves around alien and um it's also fun because i love talking movies with my friends and Haley and i um as I said we've been friends for many years um and we talk about a lot of things including film at length but Haley and I are kind of like um Kaylin Corrigan and I where we are like 50 50 on our movies half of the time we see eye to eye completely and we are like you know yes yes totally but then the other half of the time we are just like wow that is crazy I did not feel that way so uh I think Alien is going to be a great conversation for she and I to have. So that's going to do it. Uh, let's just dive in. Here is Haley Fouch talking about Alien. If only our lovely audience knew all the conversations we just had. So many good ones. That they did not get to hear. <laughs> um, Next time hit record the moment I walk in. The I door. know. It's, I always... I was telling I I said to you while we were chatting I was like damn it I thought like 5 minutes into our sus- we were talking about Suspiria for all the people at home who are jealous uh and I I should have hit record but say lovey um, Haley. Hi. So I'm so glad that you're here. I'm delighted. Uh, this has been a long time in the making. And uh, and um, we're I'm I'm asked, okay. Before we get to the movie and before we get to any of that stuff, because this is super cash, 
no press. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons that I love talking about you with movies is because I feel like you and I are like 50-50, yeah. where we either agree like totally, and it's like, yeah, and this, and yeah, and this, or we're like, no, I did. we did not see the same movie. I completely agree with that assessment, which was why I was like, what does she think of Suspiria? I had yes. no idea what you were going to say. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it's interesting because I feel like nowadays, if we don't like immediately take to social media to share our thoughts about it, it's right. like you know. It, but but you just have to sort of you know. For me, I I just was like, oh, I didn't. It's also weird because Suspiria is one of those that came out on a weird release schedule, yeah. and so I didn't know who had seen what. And <laughs> and also, I'm I'm in a I'm frenemies with Twitter right now, oh. as is most of the civilized oh, world. Yeah. Um. So I I kind of sometimes I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I don't want to talk to you, Twitter. Um, but say that is what it is. Uh, but yeah, I really loved Suspiria. I, yes, me too. That is one of our 50 matchups yes, out of a hundred. It is true. It but is it, true. you're so right. Like if you look, I feel like every year since we've been friends, we've hit about a 50, 50 yeah. mark. Like even just this year, like you loved A Quiet Place, which I like. Yeah. 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 I loved Hereditary, which wasn't for you. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I had, um, I had Kaylin Corrigan on the podcast yes, of course. and, uh, we did a whole mini on, on Hereditary, <laughs> uh, because I knew it was like either going to be her or you or, you know, the pe my friends who I'm like 50, 50 horror people with, yeah. uh, I had to like unpack it with somebody. And I had seen that you two saw that movie together. We did. Yeah. And you two, and I, I was reading all your social medias and it was like, <laughs> our minds have been melted. We've had an experience, yeah. a life-changing experience. Our souls have been punched. And uh, so I was <laughs> so like, true. amazing. I need to talk to them about it. And, um, and so... Uh, we are sort of delving into a classic um, that is, is this, your, is this your favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? It's top three for me. Okay. I would say top three, ooh, very hard. I, I have a hard time ranking films. Sure. So same. to be safe, let's say top five favorite movies of all time, okay. top three favorite horror movies Great. of all time. Okay, cool. How about you? Um, Alien doesn't really rank for me. Okay, I had a feeling this was going to... I just knew it. I knew it. But I have to say, okay, so my exposure to Alien, um, and I'm going to ask you, like, I want to know when you first saw this movie, because yeah. I think I think my first experience with Alien was either when a director's cut was released on Halloween one year. Okay. Um, probably. Like 2003? Yes, yeah. I think so. And I went, and I think I slept through it. Okay. Because, <laughs> by the way, as, as I think the audience has picked up on by now, me sleeping through a movie doesn't mean anything about the movie. <laughs> I am a borderline narcoleptic and can fall asleep anywhere. I will translate that into Clark's an incredibly hard worker <laughs> who takes sleep where she can get it. <laughs> Let's go with that. Yeah. That's a very respectful respectable assessment. <laughs> uh, I, I have fallen asleep at a concert before, like Ooh. a loud indoor concert. So I can sleep anywhere. Um, but then in high school, my senior year, I took a college English course through my high school and we had an assignment and it was to write a paper on Alien and the story. And so we watched it in class. He showed it to us in class. Um, but the story is that I never wrote the paper Ooh. And never turned it in 
and I got like a B plus in the class. Yeah, girl. So <laughs> my professor didn't grade our papers, essentially. And it was funny because I, it was like, I remember, this is not an exaggeration, standing there at high school graduation being like, but I, I haven't turned in my paper yet. <laughs> or, and, and I remember kind of pulling a guidance counselor aside and being like, wait, is this done? Like, like there's no more, the grades are turned in. And she was like, what are you talking about? I think she probably thought I was on, on drugs because I was, I was so sincerely confused because I was like, but no, I haven't turned my paper in. So how is, how am I graduating? And he just never graded our papers. He clearly was like checked out for summer too. Yes, he sure was. (laughs) Because my, one of my best friends, Ginny, she took that class with me and she was like, oh yeah, he said he was going to mail us our papers back with grades on them. He never did. He never looked at them. And I was like, amazing. How did I get away with this? Um, So I'm guessing you didn't go to private school. I did not go to private school. I went to a real public school. I went to a real public school, y'all. But, um... Oh my God. Yeah. So anyway, that's one of my earliest alien memories. Um, But yeah, this is, this one is just not one. Now I don't dislike the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just not one that a, I was brought up on, or second, uh, that I, I, it, it just doesn't speak to my aesthetic okay. um, in some ways. But that said, um, I, you know, do you know Alexander Philippe? He did the Hitchcock documentary, um, the yeah. shower scene. I don't know him personally, okay. but I know the documentary you're speaking of. Okay, he he's sort of like around some film festivals, and and he's. Very nice. Like if you ever get a chance to, he because he's around, so like talk to him, hang okay, out with him. I'll he's, find him. He's awesome. He's such a sweet man. He's been on the podcast. He talked about The Exorcist, um, and he is making a movie or made a movie, a documentary similar to the Hitchcock movie about Alien and about the chestburster mm. scene. Okay, I knew it had to be. That uh, yeah, but that. So I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know how it came out. But that is where the movie started. Where it had in, it's ended up, I don't think it is a clinical breakdown of that sequence oh, anymore. Um, I think it's more about the legacy and the mythology of Alien. Oh, there's a lot to yes, dig into there. There is. Yeah. and. It is premiering at Sundance in 2019 in him. the Midnight uh, Selection. And um, so I watched this movie twice this summer in preparation to go in and like talk about it with Alexander and knowing that he loves this movie. He loves the chestburster scene, yeah. the way that he's so meticulous about like, you know, um, uh, the, the Hitchcock scene or or this a project he's working on with William Friedkin, which is why he chose The Exorcist. Um, And so I was like, okay, well, I better, like, know my shit when I go in there. Uh, And then I rewatched the first hour um, uh, while while you were on your way today. So I feel, like, really ready to talk about Alien. I'm always ready. I've seen it. A stupid amount of Yeah, times. like what was and your... I, I did just rewatch it. Good, because yes. that's what I always suggest for people yes. to do. Um, uh, so what was your first um, experience with this movie? Because this is a question that I love asking people because I find that it is sometimes very important to how one like internalizes the movie. Absolutely. I, I agree with that so much. And for me, my entry into Alien was actually through Aliens, which I saw first. Yeah, okay. 
because my my father, who was fairly restrictive, allowed me to watch Aliens, but he would not allow me to watch Alien, which huh. he deemed too scary. Okay. Uh, so I, I definitely was introduced to the world through the block ver- blockbuster version yeah. of that story, which I love Aliens as well. And, you know, if I put Alien in my top five movies of all time, Aliens would definitely be in the top 20. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until later when I was in high school, after my father had passed, I got a much... <laughs> bigger worldview of film because my mom was not very strict. Got it. So suddenly the brakes came off, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And that's when I really, I I started working in a movie theater and right next to the movie theater was a blockbuster. So I would go to work, do movies all day, go rent like four blockbuster movies, watch them in between the next few days, go back to work and then change my movies out. This is what I did Uh every few days. And Alien was one I just watched at home. I think it was maybe senior year of high school, maybe okay. junior, junior year. And I was alone in my room. I got, you know, excited because I was like, oh, I finally get to see the origin of this story. And I was just honestly totally blown away. Yeah. And uh, an interesting thing that happens a lot with Ridley Scott movies for me is the first time I watch them, I'm like, good. And then, then the more I watch them, the more I'm like, wait, brilliant actually yeah and so that was my relationship with alien which started out being like oh good but not quite as good as aliens and then the longer my life has gone on (laughs) it's become one of my favorite films of all time yeah and i do i really agree with you about this whole idea that your experience changes your opinion of the film Mm -hmm. like for example to just straight up be fair to christopher nolan i saw inception in one of the worst possible ways i could have ever seen it and I've tried to watch it many, many times after that, but I'm not sure it can ever recover yeah. from how bad my first experience was with sure. it. Sure. So I totally agree that it changes. Yeah, and I think it it does. It and and I I as you were as you were explaining your history with it, I was thinking to myself, if Arnold Schwarzenegger had been in alien movies, I would have seen alien movies <laughs> because my dad showed me Predator. Right. And like, you know, I wa- he because my dad likes Arnold, but I, you know, similar to like uh Rock or I'm sorry, Sylvester Stallone or or any of the other like action guys, like my dad didn't wasn't he never showed me any of those. So growing up, um, science fiction and action were, you know, what he decided he wanted to show me. And, and that was often Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Right. So it wasn't, um, so I, you know, I didn't grow up on this one. Uh, I did, however, grow up in a, grow up in with a group of high school nerdy film friends who were like, oh my God, Alien is the best. Alien is the best. And so I think there's like part of me, it's it's a horror movie, a horror movie in space. And and me sitting here being like, well, I love Sigourney Weaver and like anything she wants to do is awesome. And Ripley is clearly like the considered one of the most, if not the best, greatest here action, female action hero of all time. So I was intrigued and I was interested, but then I was just kind of like, meh, you know, like, I don't, it's too much hype, essentially, I think. I get that. And like I said, it was a long journey for it to becoming one of my favorite movies. I remember actually, and I'm sorry, Travis, if you ever listen to this, I still have your copy. (laughs) I, uh, after I saw it in high school, I borrowed my friend Travis's copy in college and revisited it and, and had a whole new appreciation for it that I hadn't had, you know, those two to three years earlier. 
and it just has evolved more and more as I've gotten older. I also kind of like to make the comparison and maybe it's superficial, but I do think that they're like, it's for a reason. And, and I like to compare it to like, you can't have the Godfather part two without the Godfather. Mm. Meaning like when people talk about, oh, but the Godfather part two is like superior. And I'm like, but wait a second. It's a different kind of movie. It's an action movie that builds upon this like, hard drama of the first movie. And I kind of feel that way with Alien and Aliens. Like, I agree. You know what I mean? You you have to lay the groundwork of Alien, which is slower paced, but, so slow. but still intentional and gets you to a conclusion where James Cameron can build on it and then we can have Aliens. So, you know, obviously, like in your experience, you loved the first, you loved Aliens before you loved Alien, but knowing what you know now, they build so nicely on each other. Oh, there's, yeah, that is such an impeccable foundation to build any franchise upon, and uh, for my money, perhaps one of the weirdest franchises that's ever existed. Yes. And I'll say straight up, like, I have a bias towards Alien, Aliens, Alien franchise to the point that I like every movie. I don't care how bad it is. Uh-huh. I like it. Uh, There's the, gotta be a lot of people like you, though, because oh, they, totally. they we're six movies in. Yeah. Clearly. I, I also, like, I'll straight up go to bat for Covenant in certain ways. Mm-hmm. But I don't care. Whatever your least favorite one is. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> have we ever talked about Covenant before? I'm not sure that we so have. So I really like Prometheus. Okay. Um, I like Prometheus for a lot of the... And I understand that Prometheus is a flawed movie. Mm-hmm. That's not my concern. Uh, I find it entertaining as hell. But also, I find Ridley Scott... You know, I just love the way he uses this universe to talk about women. Sure. And there's some stuff in Covenant, or no, I'm sorry, there's some stuff in Prometheus that is just so, like, fuck yeah. yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Um, and I really, and, and, but, but with Covenant, um, about 20 minutes in, I kind of was like, eh. but then I realized that it was pretty much a slasher movie. Yeah. And I was like, Okay, I like that. Like the notion that Ridley Scott, like 80-year-old Ridley Scott is making a slasher movie with the Alien franchise. That's also weirdly philosophical and has Michael Fassbender basically jerking off but instead he's playing the flute with himself. That was it's so weird. Crazy to me that some okay, Fassbender is in a he's in a different movie and sometimes they cross, they intersect. Right. Uh, but, but like, I feel like the stuff that does not involve David in Covenant, um, spoilers, I guess. Well, audience knows if they're listening to this that they're spoilers for Alien, but I suppose we're going to get into briefly like the bigger Alien picture. So I'm just, yeah. just saying that, listening people. But the stuff with David, I find compelling, interesting, philosophical. The stuff with the crew Mm -hmm. in Covenant, I find hilarious. Totally. Like, it is, it, to me, they are, I mean, at one point, like, people actually get killed having sex in the shower. Like, straight up Friday the 13th style. Totally. And I was just like, this is insane. (laughs) Um, But, but it's, it's here and it's happening. And I, 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 so I enjoy it in that way. My read on Covenant. Uh, is that it, it's evolved, and I, I wish I could 
sort of go back and rewrite my review, don't we often all sure. feel this yes. way? Yeah. Uh, at the time, I had said it, it's half a good movie, mm-hmm. and but now I feel that it's it's two halves of two good movies that never get to be fully played out. I would agree with that. And the stuff with the crew feels so stupid because they're not given any time. Yeah. So they're, they're written off like the dumbest people in the world, which is silly and could have been avoided, but yes. wasn't. However, I really invested in those characters and the small time we were given. And I will admit straight up, I did do the set visit for that. So I got to talk to the actors mm. and hear how much they had invested in their characters before I saw the film. Yeah. So I had a deeper sense of who those characters were going in than most people, certainly. Like, I have such an attachment to Billy Crudup's character, which mm. nobody has. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, the way he explained that character to us was a really beautiful assessment of this man who's come up against a wall where his religion and faith meets science. Mm-hmm. You don't get that in the movie. Right. But I had that going into it. Yeah. And so I love that character. And you were you were you were probably not intentionally but able to look for it or yes, able totally. to you know and so those those little moments that probably don't resonate. Correct. Yeah. 100% stand out. Correct. Yeah. The little moments he has with his wife, yep. tiny things like that. Yep. So that could have been a great film if it had just been focused on those characters and treated like the original Alien yes. film, which is essentially a drama about seven people set in a creepy space story. Yep. Or it could have been this great philosophical weird thing with David. Instead, it tried to be both, which mm-hmm. doesn't fully work, but the fact that it half works both times is why I'll always be like, this is a movie worth revisiting sure. and talking about. I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Um, I also truly, I don't know if it's ego or what, but I kind of love that Ridley Scott, especially after the success of The Martian and so many, so many things, so many, so many, such a career has decided, no, nah, I'm going to come back. Yeah. I, you know, like that's, and, and I know that there's Hollywood lore and stories of of that basically fucking up a lot of people's visions for this franchise and how it could be revitalized and perhaps even even giving it a life a new life that that you know allows us to finish Ripley's story but then go forward in maybe that traditional um the way that we're rebooting things now where we like tip our hat to the thing that's come before but then we say okay we're done with your story and now we go forward um but that said, I just love that Ridley Scott's like, no, I'm not done here. I still yeah. have more to do here. Look, do I agree that we needed to investigate the biological origins <laughs> of the xenomorph? No. Yeah. But will I watch every freaking movie Ridley Scott wants to make in the Alien universe? You bet I totally. will. I'll watch every... If he wants to make 10 more, I'm going to watch 10 more. I don't know how he'll do it in the time he has left, but yeah. I'll be there. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here for that. Um, so I want to ask about going back to the original Alien. Yes. Um, I want to talk about something that really stood out to me. That and and I don't know what because I haven't seen Alexander's movie. I don't know what of mine, if anything. I know there's one line that made it in. Okay. But but it's a compilation documentary. So like he interviewed hundreds of people. Like mm-hmm. who people who are much smarter than I. So hard to believe. Uh, well, believe it, sister. <laughs> uh but that said, I'm gonna talk about Ripley. Yeah. And I wanna talk about not 
the broad strokes of what Ripley became. I want to talk about Ripley in this movie, and I want to talk about how history and people who talk about film have talked about Ripley in Alien specifically. I'm into it. Okay. So, basically, Sigourney Weaver's a boss. I think we Hell can yeah. agree. <laughs> Hell yeah. And, and Alexander did confirm to me, and, and this has been, it's not a secret, we all know this, but like sometimes when you hear Hollywood legend, rep, you know, retold over and over and over again, how much of that is actually true, totally. I don't know. But he did, you know, we do know that Ripley was written originally as a man right. in in the original drafts. And I think uh, Dan O'Bannon even went as far to say that in his original drafts, everybody was essentially genderless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's there's a note at the end of the script basically saying that two of the characters can be female which is a weird stipulation you know know. now now I think that that we're talking about the original draft which was not ultimately the complete thing that made it that's exactly right yes so um so because I've read also the lore that Sigourney Weaver wanted to play Veronica Cartwright's role wanted to play Lambert uh but which is Nuts. I mean, yeah, that's nuts. And and who knows if that's true even <laughs> right. at this point. But so to me, I rewatched I rewatched Alien twice this summer with the lens of really listening and and listening to the dialogue and paying attention with that in mind, knowing yeah. that Ripley was was genderless or written as a man. And it is shocking to me how she has been remembered as or analyzed as a cold. Have you heard this analysis that basically like Ripley is cold, she's calculating, like they gave her wow. they gave her the cat to sort of make her more personable and likable for lack of a better term. Like and and as I was doing some research this summer, not only in my own horror books that I have, but like just doing some basic googling, I sort of found that that appeared to be the consensus of the the analysis of that character. Wow. So I want to just start by that. So that's really fascinating to me, and I'm so glad we're talking about this. It was something I had put in my little notes, talking about uh, Ripley as this idea of the, quote, strong female character. Yeah. She is with, uh, you know, Sigourney Weaver's performance in performance in this film is always put alongside Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 as sort of this benchmark of, quote, strong female characters. That's a weird... It is, but it always happens. Yeah. Uh, Especially with the John Carpenter... Or not John Carpenter. Hey, how's my brain tonight? (laughs) You know what? We talked a lot about Halloween, though, before we started rolling. We did, we did. But especially with the connection between aliens and Terminator. Yes. that's, That's a natural thing to make. But yes, yes. What I love about Ripley is that she's not a strong female character. She's just a strong character. Yes. She perhaps because she was written without gender or uh, initially uh, a male gender, she is simply just a strong character who is whose values, whose virtues, uh, strengths are not dependent upon being a woman. They, mm-hmm. She just happens to be yeah. a woman. And it's an interesting conversation to have because I I appreciate the value of writing female characters intentionally to speak to female issues. Mm-hmm. 
but I also wholeheartedly believe in this idea that you can write genderless, strong characters. Yeah. And that might make them stronger than anything else. Yeah. And that, to me, like, just when I finally saw it, the part where she's like, I think she said, why don't you just fuck off? Yeah. Like, that's great. That's just how trucker dudes talk to right. each other, you right, know? Right, right. And as a woman who likes to swear, <laughs> <laughs> set a little groundwork for me and how I can talk to my male friends. I don't, the idea that she's cold in any way hasn't really been in the conversations that I've had about the mm-hmm. film. And it's very frustrating to hear. Well, may I read you something? Please do. Okay, so I have a lot of horror books because I like reading about horror movies. She's a studious little genius. Sure am. Sure am. And this book, so there's a series of books, the Virgin Film Series. I have a handful of them. They've done some great, I have the Tim Burton one, have horror films, but they did like a Coen brother. It's basically like an analysis in specific ways of certain films. And um, so the horror book, it starts with, I want to say Nosferatu or Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and then goes all the way to, I want to say Ring, The Ring, uh, or Henry Portrait of a Seer. Oh no, Ring, Ring You. Yeah. So Alien is in here. And this is written by James Marriott. So uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. An overzealous job. <laughs> <laughs> My champagne bottle just popped its temporary cork. And it landed in my glass of water. It was beautiful. Oh, my God. <laughs> Clearly, my champagne bottle is a feminist and is already angry already with this analysis of Ellen Ripley. And I'm not sticking my hand in that glass because that's a waste of water. So no. I'm just going to let it sit there. Now it's going to be champagne tin. Now so it's going to be champagne water, which is the best kind. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, as an overzealous Jobsworth, Ripley is initially an unattractive character, apparently inhumane in her insistence on quarantine procedures when Kane's life is at risk. I'm angry. As Scott put it, uh, and now this does not, I would argue this statement from Ridley Scott does not support that man's statement. And I don't think his perspective on the character does either, but go ahead. Yeah, of course not. Uh, (laughs) Sigourney was great because she had such a presence and authority as an officer. Oh, he did say this. Uh, uh, As a, um, okay, such a presence and authority as the officer who was most likely to irritate. Okay. So that's a quote from Ridley Scott, allegedly. I don't know where it came from. Okay, I can I mean, agree that she's an irritant to the rest of the crew. Yes. Um, okay, so now, here's, here we're going to continue. Uh... Ironically, the depiction of the alien as without remorse, conscience, morality, a survivor, comes close to describing both Ripley and Parker, the strongest members of the crew. Ripley is the perfect company woman, following the, <laughs> following the quarantine role, rules by the book and even completing the captain's log at the end of the film. She is only redeemed as humane by the ludicrous act of going back for the cat. Uh, I'll continue. While Parker, who didn't want to respond to the distress call unless he was given more money, is redeemed by his selfless attack on the alien, which he refuses to fire uh, fire on for fear of hitting Lambert. Ripley 
in the cold, emotionless state that allows her to survive where others, noticeably, no, notably Lambert, crippled by emotion, do not, resembles not only the alien, but also the company, another ruthless example of evolutionary success. That is frankly a psychotic stance. I, I mean, now this language is really strong. Yeah. Uh, but the sentiment I have found elsewhere. So allow me to explicate on why I think that's insane. Please. Ripley fundamentally is the antithesis of what the company wants. And as is proven repeatedly throughout the film, Ash is the representation of what the company yes. wants. And Ripley stands in defiance of him at every single turn. Her act of demanding quarantine is not callous. It is to preserve the life of the majority, yeah. which is still left on the ship, as opposed to the minority, which went out investigating. Yes. It is a humane act, not a cold act. It is a wise, smart, and the reason in my opinion, that you are instantly on her side is because she's the smart one. She knows that's the right thing to do. And on top of that, I rewatched the scene before you got here where she says, no, you can't come in. And it's not cold. No. It's not a cold delivery. But what it is also not is emotional. It's And I think... I think that that's appropriate because she is in a blue-collar work environment and I think that because she is a woman not sitting there biting her nails being like oh I don't know what to do my friends but instead says no I'm in charge here this is the protocol and in order to protect all of us on the ship I'm sorry but he's out he we have to put him in quarantine but because I think she wasn't um, demonstrating an overly quote fingers feminine Turmoil right. at making the decision, some people interpret it that way. I agree. I think that's a very gendered analysis. And I, I find that the history of film would show again and again that the, the male characters who take it upon themselves to protect the many in opposition to the lives of a few are regarded as heroes. Yeah, and that was a huge standout to me was was once that scene came in the it, while I was watching it, watching it with the with the goggles on of think about this if this was a man. Yeah. Um, that stood out to me, the idea that if a man were if a male actor, a male gendered actor was playing this role, he would be contemplative and just doing his job and having to make tough decisions. Exactly right. And firm, but had to do it. A rational man. That's right. That's yeah. right. That's that's very frustrating. And I, I feel very blessed that I've gone this far in my <laughs> life without hearing this. Sorry to ruin this for no, you. No, no. I'm always open to hearing other points of view, if only to disagree with them so strongly. Yes. Uh, uh, it's It's... Not knowing much about this book that you just read from, it is unfortunate to me when I read analysis like this that becomes a part of the canon of how we talk about a film when I feel that it is so not only off base, but in in the context of that quote taken from Ridley, uh, manipulated to represent something that I don't feel the filmmaker had in mind at all. If you listen to the 
any. I, I think there are two, maybe three commentaries from Ridley Scott on Alien. I've listened to two. There might be another one I haven't heard. But he is very much of the opinion that Ripley is the correct character, making the correct choices. Yeah. She's the hero. Well, the other thing he mentions in this book, in this piece that I just read from, um, Ripley and Parker. And I think that it's... Imp- I am not saying that this is on purpose, but Parker is African-American. Sure. And Ripley is a woman. Yeah. And these two are the ones throughout the whole fucking movie who... Parker, okay, I was just like, I love Parker because in yeah. the beginning, he's like, fuck that. This is not in my contract. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, hell, I'm not doing that unless you pay me. And I was like, hello, it me. Yeah. Like, th- th- I am like, you, why am I going to go risk my life? This isn't my fucking job. Here's also, my fucking job. I love that she's like, you're guaranteed to get a share. Right. Do your job. Yes. So, and then as we continue, though, you know, uh, whether it's maintaining the quarantine or whether it's Parker saying, freeze him, we should freeze him. Right. Like, hello. Or um, we shouldn't be, uh, the, Parker has the line, I shouldn't, we shouldn't have landed on this uh, damn planet or this damn place in the first place. Mm-hmm. And it's like, be, but I think that there is something interesting to reading these characters as these two, you know, um, minority characters are the ones that nobody listens to. The underheard voices. That's exactly right. And they were right the whole fucking time. Yeah. No, I agree. And I, I would not be surprised if that was an intentional decision by Ridley Scott, who I think can be a conflicting character occasionally on Mm -hmm. his depictions and representations, but is surprisingly to use the, the, the phrase woke for like an 80-something-year-old man. Like, can you believe? Also, nobody works harder than Ridley Scott. Like, the way he was able to excise Kevin Spacey from his movie and still get his movie out by release That was date, fucking hilarious. That's one of the and most like baller, baller things I've that, ever seen. That was totally a baller move. It was kind of amazing. Nobody hustles like Ridley Scott. And I do believe that he's aware of the subtext of his films and and values it. For sure. And I think that, um, yeah, to take that a little bit further. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Ripley and Ash. So uh, I'm not going to say about what I do know. As I said earlier, I know one line from my session with Alexander made it into the movie and it is about Ash. I have strong feelings about Ash. Oh, let him lose. Uh, I want to say, I want to like, I want to save it, but uh, for the movie, go see the movie. We all need to see the movie. Um, But, but Ash was a character that truly, when you really break down his actions um, is insane. Like I want to do a whole, um, a whole movie programming series about androids on film. I love that. Um, because Ash, when you really watch it for what he's doing, basically everything he does has to be programmed. Somebody programmed him yes. in such a way. And we find out from um, from Dallas that, you know, obviously he was a last-minute addition to the crew. Yes. Um, but the scene where Ripley confronts Ash, not the magazine scene. Sure. 
And not the scene where she finds about out about mother, but where she goes to him and she's like, you know, uh, she basically grills him and she says, you let him in. Yeah. And she kind of does it with this way of like, hey, fuck face. Yeah, <laughs> you know what totally. I mean? Like she does it with a little bit of a smirk. Like, hey, moron, now we're in a big problem. How are you feeling about Look that? Look what you did. Yeah, big man. And she points out. I am in charge. You're a science officer, whatever the fuck that means. Um, But I, yeah, she says it's a pretty big risk for a science officer. (laughs) And I was just like, oh, I love her. She's the best. I mean, so, but their dynamic is one of the most fascinating dynamics to me in this whole movie. Um, Hard agree. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I could talk about Ash I, I even, like, in my notes have a note here that says that Ian Holm as much as she deservedly gets the respect for being the performance that makes the film, Sigourney Weaver. Yes. Ian Holm is the other performance that makes the film. Yeah. He is an antagonist, truly. Truly. And outside of the realm of, like, sure, the, the, the xenomorph is an antagonist in the way of man versus nature, but... He is an antagonist in a way that you can relate to and get angry at and yeah. really invest in in uh, Ridley's, not battle, but sort of intellectual battle with him that's going on that eventually becomes physical. Yeah. I, you know, hearkening back to what we talked about, he is the manifestation of the company will. Yes. He is literally the company man. He, he, I mean, he is literally. Yeah. And he is sort of this pre, you know, way before the age we live in now where corporations became sort of, it's a fascinating thing where we had the church, we had the state before, and now we have the corporations, which dictates as much of our thought as anything else in the modern age. The corporation holds a huge sway over how we think and speak, just like the church and the state used to. He is the mouthpiece of the corporation within this film. And he doesn't speak it so much as act on it, but that is his role, is to to sacrifice the human in favor of the corporate mm-hmm. good. And that makes him a fascinating character. The fact that he turns out to be an android is even more fascinating and such a testament to the performance that Ian Holm did. Yeah. You can watch little details of uh, before he's revealed, oh, and just yeah. the way he moves his mouth or twitches his eyes, little little things could give it away, but don't because his performance is so on point. I think it's very clear that you're not supposed to be on his side. Yeah. But I don't think it's clear that he's this full villainous uh, actor in the favor of corporate interest until the fully the the veil is lifted on this character. And it's interesting, the process in which the veil is lifted on this character is pretty slow. Mm-hmm. You you don't like him because he's opposed to Ripley. I'm sorry, I keep posing or pausing because I'm like, Ripley or Ridley, Ripley or Ridley. Yeah, I know, it's a lot. There's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, also, my uh, my dear beloved nephew is named Ripley, so oh. I, I'm like, oh, not the baby, he's a sweetheart. <laughs> we love him. Yeah. Uh, but... It's it's a period of time in which it becomes clearer and clearer that A, he's callous and foolish. First he's foolish, then he's callous, because when you watch the, the chest burster scene or the subsequent scenes when there's alien action, he's just waiting to see yeah. what happens. Oh, yeah, for he's sure. He's not worried. No. 
and you think, oh, there's something wrong with him, there's something wrong with him, and it's a slow build until the, not the confrontation you were talking about, yes. but the actual yes. confrontation, yes. and then you go, oh, there's something really wrong with this guy, but even the first time you watch it, even the first time when you see that milk going yeah. down his cheek, you don't quite know what that means, and you're still figuring it out until the moment his head gets knocked yeah. off, and then you're like, oh, fuck, he's an android. Yes, yes. It's, he's... Yeah, he might be my favorite part of the film upon rewatching and rewatching. It's it's a it's a fascinating character, and that was something that I'm curious about. Like, so we're ta- let's talk about like the with with when we're talking about the the physical confrontation between Ash and Ripley, yeah. the magazine sequence sure. and scene. Um, you know, I'm sure much has been discussed about the the sexual implications mm-hmm. and you know the whatever. I think it's the '93 commentary where. Ridley Scott says, that's the closest you'll see to a robot having sex. You, you Have you read the line where he says sex is boring unless you're doing it? No. Oh, this is, that is a, this is a quote in, I think it's in this book or it's in another book, but um, yeah, that's a Ridley Scott quote for why he doesn't want to put sex in his movies a lot of the time. Interesting. Is because he's like, it's fucking boring. And <laughs> I guess that's why he had Cameron Diaz fuck a car. I mean... Also, I get. I suppose if you at that point when you're Ridley Scott, you're just like, what can I get away with? <laughs> yeah. Um, but with the magazine sequence, I mean, obviously there's a lot to the sexual undertones of that. But what I'm interested in is the notion that Ash, as an android, you would think that he would be programmed if he if he is going to, for whatever reason, make the decision to end the human life. You would think that he would do it in a more efficient way. Right. But the fact that he chooses, as an android, to humiliate, to maybe uh, remind Ripley that she's a woman Mm -hmm. and that he's... It it feels like a fuck you. It feels like a middle finger Mm -hmm. the way he chooses to assault her. He could have strangled her. He could have snapped her neck. He could have done probably just taken her head clean off. Yeah, he could have done so many things, and yet, as an android, an alleged perfect, you know, creation or whatever, which put up against a xenomorph, you know, obviously is the perfect creation. <laughs> right. But, but it's all it's a it's a fascinating choice to mm-hmm. include in a film, and something that bewilders me to this day because I. That doesn't strike me as something that was intentional, but I don't, meaning that subtext. Totally. But I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do, and I mean, okay, so it ties into sort of a broader thought that I have about this whole film, which I think is the reason why it works the best is, as a horror film at least, Mm -hmm. is that the horror of it, Yes, it's based in the unknown and and charting the expanses of space, which will always be sort of terrifying to humans. But what I think makes it truly scary is the way that it it defies the natural order. So, like, Mm -hmm. at every turn, it defies natural order. If you talk about um, sex, that becomes the face hugger, which assaults a man. Sure. If you talk about birth, it's the chest burst where it comes through. If you talk about biology... We're, we're led to believe that Ash is a man, but he is not. He mm-hmm. is in defiance of biology. Mm-hmm. And so his behavior, being in defiance of logic, fits to me in some capacity mm. in that way. And especially being that so much of the, uh, 
the imagery of the horror in the film is based on sex and biology, it would make sense to me that his assault would be weirdly sexual without actually being overtly sexual at all. Mm. That's in the context, though, of the film writer's perspective. Mm. From this android or character perspective, no, I don't think I have any answer to what you just asked. But, but from an analytical perspective of the sort of the gestalt, the whole, yeah. it, it fits in this concept of creating horror by defying everything that comes in with the natural order. Sure, sure. Because even if he was actually, as a, as a man might in a f- situation of violence and anger trying to rape her, that wouldn't be what he would do either. Right. It's somewhere in between. It's not natural. And it's the weirdest... It's yeah, you're right. It is. It, it is. It, it from a screenwriting perspective, it probably the conversation probably was how can he penetrate her in a way that is not penetration, right? You know, and and he does, and I mean, of course, like the you know, if you even look at the the magazine he uses, it's pornography. Of course. I mean, it's like it's not subtle. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I that. Man, I just have so many, I just have so many feelings about Ash. So, um, like, you're, I'm curious, so your stance on the character, because you have so many feelings, do you feel that what he does in the film upsets you beyond the measure of what they intended to upset you with? I think that if I think about it in a, in using sort of the example I just gave as as like a, broad strokes example like that's yeah. that's kind of, the the notion that somebody programmed ash to do what he did right is so fucked up true and that's like upsetting on a whole other level to me but his character doesn't make you mad at the film or the writer oh no okay. no 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 i mean no he's just like the worst because he sucks right <laughs> Like, I, I don't like the way he talks to her. I don't like... Yeah. Also, he has the biggest crush on Dallas. Oh, yeah. I mean, like... But who doesn't? I mean, Tom Skerritt yeah. and his fancy mustache. Who doesn't love his fancy <laughs> mustache? But no, I mean, seriously, like, it's almost comical the way... And I, I don't mean like I'm laughing at the movie, but when I was rewatching the scene tonight where... It's the three of them. Uh, it's a- Ash, Ripley, and and Dallas, and they're trying to figure out what to do now that the face hugger has like started to run away. The chestburster hasn't happened yet, mm-hmm. and and they're like the three of them are lined up, and Ash literally kind of just like cranes his neck, and and you know Ripley's over here, and she's like, I think this, and he's like, but Ash, or but Dallas, what do you think? And he just gives him googly eyes. And it's just like, what? What is happening right now? And I think it's amusing. Like I'm yeah. not criticizing it. I just, if you really, this is the thing about this movie is I feel like there are a handful of characters, whether it is Ripley or Ash or even Parker. If you watch them specifically throughout the whole movie, those are the three to me that are doing things where it's just like. This is where the rewatch value comes to me because you can see these characters. It's kind of like you were saying with Covenant where you see these special motivations. You can see the wheels turning and it's fascinating 
And it's very human, by the way. It's a very human study. Like, yes, seven different individuals on this ship would all react to this completely differently, probably. I love that Harry Dean Stan's character is kind of just straight up stupid. Yeah. He's a dumb guy. He is. He yeah. is. And that's okay. And, he, yeah. and that's a realistic way to react to the scenario. You're way over your head. Yeah. You're a dummy. You're like, yeah, I'll go look for this cat while there's <laughs> some sort of killer alien yeah. on the loose. Which, by the way, might be my favorite scene in the movie when he gets to that room with the dripping yeah. water. Yeah. It's it it represents this sort of nightmare logic that I feel was really potent and valuable in the first alien film and has unfortunately come to be a dominant factor in, yeah. in Ridley Scott's later films. He just leans into nightmare logic too much. Right. Like there's no reason that water should be dripping from the ceiling of a spacecraft. No. Ridley Scott came up with the excuse that it's it's uh, condensation. Sure. But that's bullshit. Yeah. It's nightmare logic. It just looks cool. Yeah. There's no reason that any grown-ass man would be going around going kitty, kitty, kitty right. when there's a killer alien right. on loose. Right, right, right. But that's part of what makes the scene work so beautifully for me. And I do love that we get the perspective of just this kind of dumb guy mm-hmm. who's way over his head. These are, like you said, blue-collar mm-hmm. space travelers. Totally. They are not geniuses, mm-hmm. except for maybe Ash. Right. Uh, I love that perspective. Even Veronica Cartwright's character, who I, I occasionally struggle with on I rewatches. I absolutely struggle with her character. But you kind of have to get it, even sure. if you're annoyed by her. Like, that's a totally realistic reaction. It is. It totally it's just is. It's annoying. It's, it's annoying, and it's yeah. also just like, you know... It's tough because I'm always like, anytime a character, a female character specifically, isn't quote fingers strong enough or per- right. or perfect enough, I get annoyed because I'm like, well, women aren't always perfect and we make mistakes and we don't always make good choices and why do we have to have our shit together all the time? But I also think that then we cross over into the histrionic screaming, crying girl Who's just like very fair, and I and I wonder too. Like there is okay. So here's a question. They are these are this is a blue collar crew, yeah. um, and I think that we are supposed to believe that you know these are people just doing a job. Like for us modern audiences, space travel is like wow, only astronauts can do that, right? right? But but in this world, this is a crew. This right. is a crew of people, and this is their job. Um, But there is something to be said for the fact that these people had to probably pass tests and screenings to go into space travel for such an extended period of time. And so I think realistically the question is, is like, would a character like Veronica Cartwright's character actually make it onto that crew? Mm. That's an interesting question and I support it, but I think it presupposes a lot about events outside the context of the film. Yeah. And I'm I'm fine with playing that game, but maybe I'm just biased towards a film yeah. that I love so much. I tend not to try to ask those kinds of questions extensively outside of what's presented in the film. Sure. So the film tells us that for whatever reason... She's on the crew. She's on the crew. Yeah. Maybe it was her fucking dad. Who was putting people on this crew? You know, like yeah. you know, you could write. Know. You could write in one line an excuse to make it work, sure. right? Sure. You'd be like, her husband owns the company. Anything like that would, yeah. would do. So I'll accept that at face value. I get your point totally. Yeah. 
I also think it's very realistic that people who could face well on tests. Oh, yeah. Just melt down. Totally collapse. When the shit hits the... And yeah, and they're faced with not only potential death um, as a result of their mission failing and technical glitch, but also this crazy new creature that is snuck onto their ship that's melting people with its blood. And I'll also say, so like part of why I understand why maybe this movie isn't for everyone is because it legit takes 45 minutes for something to really happen. Yes, it does. It is atmospheric for 45 minutes. But I also think that contributes to the fact that once the chestburster happens, people lose their shit completely. Yeah. Like, Ripley doesn't, mm-hmm. but she's a rare breed, you know? She's, she's a true hero, and that's a special thing in film. Mm-hmm. For other people to go... <laughs> this ties into Ash, too, because you might think before you know what he is that he's lost it a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? But it's totally normal for people when they say something that horrifying for it to throw them off their base. Yeah. Do I find her frustrating? Absolutely. Right. But I do have a measure of empathy for her, Mm -hmm. knowing that maybe take, for example, my mom or my grandma or someone like that. I don't think they'd fare particularly well in that scenario. Sure. Uh, I do have empathy, but yes, she is very frustrating in her complete inefficiency. And it goes back to that first thing we talked about, the the fucking quarantine. Yeah. She's one of the biggest screamers against it, and that really bothers me. Oh, yeah. And and they they there's a scene, oh, God, where they, they basically, like, squabble with Ripley, and, and I can't... Oh, yeah, they have, like, a fight? Yeah. Like yeah, like is, a hand fight. Is that in the theatrical cut also? Yes. Okay, because I, I admittedly this summer when I was watching the movie a lot was watching the director's cut that was up on uh, HBO. And they're not that different. They're not, but I will say today when I was watching the movie on my DVD, which is the regular like theatrical cut, there were things that were not there where I was like, oh, shit, like that. That one little tweak or that one yeah. little... I'm not talking about the the sequence where she finds at Dallas and he says, kill me. Like, right, that's right. a big set piece kind of thing. I'm talking about, like, a line here or there or a scene that goes on a little bit longer or is a little bit shorter that specifically pulls information away. Right. You know what I mean? So from my understanding... Unlike most of the director's cuts in Rid- Ridley Scott's career, which are uh, traditionally better, yeah, this was one that was put upon him. And mm. essentially, from my understanding, Fox was like, either you recut it or we're going to because it's it's an anniversary and we're going to release this DVD with the director's cut. I know his director's cut is famously shorter. Shorter, yes. And it does have that one big scene you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. But... The the trims are interesting. It's like you said, they're small but important. Yeah, they're very significant. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a weird thing. I, I just so last night I rewatched the director's cut and this morning I okay. rewatched the theatrical. Got it. And I yeah, it's it's such subtle differences that I feel like most your average moviegoer, your your matinee ticket buyer in Utah or whatever would not notice the differences right. necessarily. But really, when you think about the the construct of those 
the film, those little minute differences add up to a lot. Yeah. And I think it speaks to the integrity of Ridley Scott's original vision that such small differences change the moves, movie so completely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, so as we're getting into our final minutes of this section or this this episode before we get to our very special mini episode, which I'm very excited about, um, I just want to quickly mention because – I mean, I don't really have anything. I don't know. But I want to give you the opportunity because I don't have anything to say about the final sequence. You know, the the scene where Ripley's like sure. she pulls the fast one on the alien and all that. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have anything to say about that that hasn't already been said uh, by many other people. But do you have anything that you wanted to bring up that we haven't touched on, whether it's in that scene or or elsewhere? You know, that scene's interesting. This isn't a big focal point for me, but it's interesting because. It may have been a second commentary, but Ridley Scott was like, uh, basically the creative powers that be said he was pushing it too far by adding that scene onto mm. it. And he was like, nowadays people will make three or four endings and I just added a second one. Yeah. But uh, I, th- I do think that scene is essential to giving a sense of closure to the audience that yeah. we've been missing. My biggest thing that we didn't want to talk about that's sort of important to me is the cinematography of the film mm. uh, by a gentleman who I may mispronounce, but I believe is Derek Valland, who worked, it's so fascinating, he worked in commercials mm-hmm. before Alien and then primarily commercials after Alien. Interesting. With the exception of, I think, two to three feature films. Mm. He passed away, uh, I, I want to say, I don't have it in my notes, but I think it was 2010, or maybe slightly thereafter. And the only other movie that's really of note, like a big movie he did cinematography on, was he shot the um, the the special effects sequences in X-Men. Mm. The first X-Men. Yes. Okay. So he lit one of the most beautifully lit films of all time. I can't... I, I haven't really had an opportunity to speak too much to the testament of how much the um, the technical integrity of this film yeah. means to me. So the cinematography, the set design. The set design. The sound design. And the models and visual. Oh, my God, the miniatures. They they really hold up. They And they carry the film. Yes. Like especially the sound and the lighting in the last 15 minutes. I think it's 15 to 17 minutes are dialogue-free towards the end. So it's the sound and the lighting that are carrying the film. This man lit one of the best lit films of all time and then went back to commercials. And if you read his interviews, there's actually some really great stuff you can read if you're so inclined like me. I find that this film really rewards obsession Mm -hmm. and you can rewatch and reread many things. But in uh, ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers magazine, they have these two incredible pieces, one by Ridley Scott and one by Derek, again, I think it's Valent. That that breakdown in incredible detail what it took to make Alien. I think maybe he just didn't think it was worth the money. <laughs> yeah. Straight up. Like, I think he was like, I can make way better money in commercials. I may have made a great piece of art, but this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. That was a hard shoot, too. Yeah. Like, by all, by all accounts, Alien was not an easy, no. an easy process. Not at all. I, don't, I find that really fascinating to have created one of the most beautiful things in cinema history mm-hmm. and then to have essentially retired from that field. Yeah, it is interesting because, like, you know, we, we think about 
we think about the entertainment industry as art forward. Um, even even if we're making commercial work, you know, or even if, when I say commercial, I mean I don't mean commercials. I mean like whether you're shooting a big blockbuster and you're an actor, or cinematographer, art department, whatever, like in theory, you're doing it because you are an artist and you want to be artistically fulfilled. Right. But also it is a business and people got to work, you know? Right. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I do think that that's a very interesting observation. And I think you're probably correct that he was just like, why the fuck would I do this? Right. Why, why the fuck would I move across the world to work on this really hard thing that is infuriating for months at a time, three to six months at a time, yeah. when I could just go over here? And if you read that ASC article, he had to change his whole technique. He, he did everything differently from everything he's ever done in his career before that moment. And what's crazy is it paid off, you know? Yeah. Like it's... He is now in the annals of history of filmmaking for this. But as a person, does that mean it's worth the cost? Sure. That's an interesting question to ask. Like, what is the value of becoming iconic versus what makes your life better? Yeah. I don't know. I think about this a lot. It's a side tangent to end on. No, but it's really interesting. But every time I watch the movie, I'm like, God damn, that is beautiful. Yeah. And we didn't get much from him. I I he did Beastmaster or something like mm, that. Interesting. And then those special effects on X-Men and really he he you know, I feel like we missed a right. whole art catalog from him that we could have had. Yeah. But thank God he made this one film that was so important. Yeah. I I would agree. I would agree. Um that's it. I didn't even I had no idea, but that's such an interesting that's an interesting piece of t- trivia or a fact, you know, <laughs> that, that that was his trajectory. Um, the, the, the only other thing that we didn't talk about in Alien that I wanted to just briefly mention was how much I love the scene where Ripley uh, goes and, and d- digs into Mother and figures out, like, yeah. what's going on. And, and that's the crew time. Crew expendable. Yes, crew expendable. And we see her cry. Yeah. And that was such like a to me that's such an important moment within the context of this character, because we talk so much about her being um, gen, gen, written as either a male gendered person or genderless. Yeah, and you know we as juxtaposed especially against Veronica Cartwright who is crying the entire movie sure. her 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 getting emotional and realizing what's happening and then having to overcome that very quickly to put the face back on and to to get back to business is just to me a very important moment that i think is you know, like there are so many sequences in Alien that we can talk about that are mind blowing, or that are significant, or that are action filled, or that are that are technically fascinating. But that's such a human moment, vulnerable yeah. moment for a character that is allegedly cold, cold and heartless. Yeah, exactly. The mouthpiece of a company, and the one redeeming. You know, for the, for James, God bless James Marriott, the writer of horror films from the Virgin Film series, which I quite like this book, but. Sorry, James. Sorry, James. I'm but sure you're nice. Maybe. He, yeah. But the fact of the matter is, like, saying that going back for the cat is the way to humanize her. When we just watched her break down, when she found out what was actually going on. Yeah. Like. Uh, she was already humanized. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's that's an interesting thing. And I, 
uh, again, saying that this film rewards obsession, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some material out there that spoke to the filming of that scene. Yeah. I don't know of it, if yeah. there is, but I would be curious how much of that was improved by Sigourney Weaver, yeah. how much of that was a matter of direction, and where that came from. It is it is a beautiful scene, and that also, I feel, is a testament, not to derail too much from what you're saying, sure. but to the precision of the filmmaking, every time they go to show you something on a computer screen, that could so easily date the movie out of existence mm-hmm. at a certain point. But what they've done there is so precisely minimal yeah. that it works all these years later and her reaction still works. Even in the beginning of the film, they, they show you stuff that's zero one zero zero one zero zero. That still holds today, right. you know? For her reaction in that moment, I mean, that could have just been in the script. That is, to me, a genderless reaction. Mm-hmm. That is a moment of truth. However, that's a genderless reaction from the perspective of 2018. Right. Where we're confronting this whole, like, men can cry right. and be emotional and have all these feminine virtues as well. So I'm very, I would love to try, I'm a, after we finish this, I'm going to try to dig into it and see if I can find any materials on how that was shot yeah. and where that came from. I would love to know if you find anything. Because it is, I, I feel that now crying is more gender neutral, but in in that time period was probably ascribed to more female characters. Yeah, especially too because she's so quote fingers masculine. Exactly. Um, quote fingers to quote, the I mean, yes, I want to be very clear, yeah. like <laughs> about what I'm saying. Um, okay, so everybody, this was a great discussion on Alien. Uh, I like talking about Alien more than I like watching it, I think. So interesting. It's so interesting. Um, and I could talk for days about Ridley Scott, but um, yes. <laughs> I, I, we, if for our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, I would ha- strongly encourage you to go back and listen to the episode about uh, Thelma and Louise um, that I did with Jillian K. Jacobs, who's a screenwriter. Um, it's one of my favorite episodes, but it is dark. It's a dark oh episode because it's a dark, movie and you know and but Ridley Scott uh it's just really important that he made that movie I think um for a lot of reasons before we sign off yes I think he's a really important filmmaker and I feel like somehow maybe because he's so old and still working people don't they take that for granted yeah they they say oh he's this old man who needs to hang it up or something and and sort of undervalue what he's done throughout his career. Yeah, and you know what? Like I I'm I've gotten to a point with that attitude of like he needs to hang it up or you know why why did Tilda Swinton have to play the German guy in Suspiria? <laughs> Stupid. It's like because she fucking wanted to and she's yeah. Tilda Swinton. Because Tilda Swinton and Luca Guadagnino are weird people and they wanted to do a weird thing together. And also if she you know how many I am sorry I need to get up on a tiny little soapbox here but how many stupid indulgent performances have we seen from from stupid indulgent Actors who happen to be men. Preach, baby. I mean, preach. I just like it infuriates me. And really, Scott, I want him to keep making dumb alien movies, smart alien movies, 
alien Somewhere movies. in between. Somewhere in between. Whatever. And I want him to make weird movies where he kicks Kevin Spacey the fuck out of there and is like, <laughs> bye. He's like, this is doing theaters in six days. Great. I got it. On it. Um, or or The Martian or whatever Ridley Scott wants to do for as ever long as he wants to. He's earned it. That's a thing. And like Tilda Swinton has earned it. And, you know, weird stuff. Like, I, I'm just... I just think that people who have earned their right to be eccentric and and also it's not eccentric to want to keep working, by the way. No, um, that's not what I'm I, I'm not really articulating my point, but I just feel like people who have done the work, go have fun, go do your weird thing and don't listen to people who are criticizing you for it. And just because you've been a voice in the industry for decades doesn't mean your voice is less important to me. I feel that that's like. If your voice is less important, if you never updated your voice over the decades, sure. That's the distinction I think that's really important. Let's talk about because that. Paul was a Paul Schrader. Oh, Paul Schrader. I mean, oh, so buddy, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so like Paul Schrader uh, has not evolved apparently. Over Even the- though his film <laughs> was extraordinary to me. Yeah, lots of people like it. I haven't seen the movie, so I can't say. And it's very modern and relevant in terms of mm-hmm. its themes pertaining to environmental issues mm. and, and the feeling we may all have about the world ending. But homeboy just yeah. cannot get on board woman stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know. You he know. just can't. And you know what? That's his journey. No, no, no. I'm not, I don't mean to equivocate. Oh, and say that he is on the same level of Ridley mm. Scott, who I do think is still incredibly sharp and incisive, yes. and on the side of women. Oh yes, uh, Paul Schrader's not. Gotta get off Facebook, <laughs> don't we all? Though yeah. let's just let's just actually your takeaway point here is all of us need to get the fuck off Facebook. Really, Please, delete your account. Delete <laughs> literally all of us. Um, okay, so before we move on to our very special mini episode, everybody gets to add a movie. To the to the list that isn't already on it. Uh, so, Haley Fouch, what is your movie that you were adding to the list? So I think this is correct. I tried to look through all the lists. Tell me if I'm wrong. It doesn't. I, I don't even. The lists are so arbitrary. But tell me. The thing. Yeah, it's not on there. Girl. That's insane. It, thank you. This is also a soapbox I have been on since the beginning of the show. Oh, good. And fun fact: Do you know why I added the part of adding a movie to the list? the thing yes yeah you did it baby. is absolutely that it is because <laughs> and and sorry audience you've heard this a million times from me but it is because I looked at the thrills list that's where I was like are you kidding me it, when it comes to the most thrilling sequences and films in American cinema John Carpenter's the thing not being on there is objectively wrong insane so it's wrong you know how I was like, I don't like ranking things, yeah. but more or less, this is where Alien falls. Wherever Alien falls, the thing consistently falls one spot above it. Yeah. For me. Yep. I love that movie more than almost 99% of movies yeah. ever made. Yeah. I think it's not just my taste, it's just an impeccably made film. I agree. And yeah, I that was the one. I, I looked through all the lists and I was like, well, I didn't see the thing, but I didn't do like control search <laughs> on every page. Yeah, but, but when I got to the thrills, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, and the thing from another world, the original thing from another world was, I know it was nominated because they, su- they submitted 500 films and then they picked 100. Uh-huh. And um, 
John Carpenter's The Thing was not even submitted, but The Thing from Another World was, which you just, yeah. Truly psychotic. It's so stupid. You know what? I think that we'll speak to this in our next mini segment, but I I feel that these lists are compiled by the same people looking at the same movies for a hundred years. Yep. And I find that to be a huge flaw, especially, like I said, when we get to our next one, when we look at Hitchcock. Yeah, and, you know, this is part of the reason why it's something that, you know, uh, and I've mentioned this on the show before, but but I think it's important and deserves, needs to be mentioned as much as it needs to be mentioned that, you know, I picked the list because it was just like a guideline. It was like, oh. okay, you know, here are some choices. Just pick one of these and we'll go from there. The list. And it is an abundance of film. But, but one thing that I found from recording these episodes was exactly what you just said, which is that when I invite people on the show who are people of color, who are women, who are younger, queer, who are absolutely like people from different, pers- from not the traditional AFI perspective. Right. Um, what we find is oftentimes there are, there are huge oversights. Uh, things are ranked in a very weird way. But then also we find that sometimes they get it right. And sometimes we're like, yeah, actually we do kind of, we've talked about it for an hour. We think that's the blank greatest movie of all time. Well, that's the value of a podcast like this is that you take that list in consideration and you reappraise it with all these new voices yes. involved. I think that's a really good thing that you're doing. Thank you. It's been She fun. said on the podcast. Ooh, <laughs> you've already got gotten onto the podcast, Haley. You don't need to flatter me. Well, I do. I do think that's a valuable thing is to take something like this that is, it's put down sort of in the the history book. It's yes. like, AFI's top films, this, 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 and this. And I've actually heard people say like, well, if it's not in the AFI type 100 of this, I probably haven't seen it. It's a, that's the list why matters. it makes it valuable Absolutely. to reappraise it. Yes, I agree. I agree. Um, and with that... We shall tease our mini episode coming to Patreon on Thursday where we're going to dive into some Hitchcock stiff. Uh, So if you liked this, you're going to want to listen to the next one. All right, Haley, we're going to pause. Quick bathroom break, refill our wine glasses, and then it's time for some Hitchcock. Yes. Yes. friends, there you have it. Haley Fouch and I going in depth about Alien and Ridley Scott and lady things and androids and franchises and all kinds of things. Uh, I even read from a book. How do you like that? Um, if you liked this episode, definitely check out uh, Haley's podcast, The Witching Hour. And um, if you haven't already started uh, contributing to Patreon, I would love to suggest giving it a try because Haley and I have a really, we called it a mini, uh, but it is um, about 40 minutes long. And we take a deep dive into Hitchcock and the legacy of Hitchcock and his most iconic movie and how they're regarded within film criticism. It's a great conversation. It'll be up on Patreon this Thursday, patreon.com slash Clark Wolf. And uh, that is going to be available to people who contribute for $5 a month. Um, If you're not interested in Patreon, once again, totally cool. Please feel free to rate and review the podcast. Please share the podcast. Um, I I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. Alrighty, friends, that's going to do it for me today. Enjoy the rest of your day and I will see you Thursday.